is the last big holiday until Thanksgiving. So I'm sure there are many people that are enjoying their families right now. I want to speak to you this morning on sticky faith. One generation to another. Amen. For parents to see their sons and daughters make the choice to serve God is a wonderful thing. I've seen many relay races in my life. I actually was a part of a, a track and field team when I was in high school. And it's very important how you pass the baton in a relay race. You have to do it carefully and smoothly. In fact, it's just as important as having runners that can run fast. In 1996, in the Olympics, the clear favorite to win the four 100-meter relay race was the United States. Now, this race has been won by the United States 75% of the time. And it's because we put together great runners, but we also focus on passing the baton. But at this particular Olympics in 1996, the United States team lost to the Canadian team. Why did this amazing group of sprinters lose the race, they were disqualified because of an improper passing of the baton. It's not that they didn't run the fastest. They were the fastest. But it, it was how they passed the baton. The Olympic Committee reviewed the film and said that they were disqualified because of how the baton was passed. Quite a tragedy because those athletes had trained for years to win this race. This inability to pass the baton properly from one runner to the next had become a problem. You see, every time we've lost in this particular race, uh, when I say we in the United States of America, every time that we've lost, we've lost because of improper procedure in passing the baton. We usually always beat the opposing team when it comes to flat-out racing, but passing the baton has become a problem that we've had to hire specialists to train the runners to pass it properly. The Bible compares our life to a race in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 1. It's not just any race. It's a relay race. This is not just a race about you this morning. I know you were baptized and you received the baptism of the Holy Ghost. But this is not just about you that are sitting here. This is about other generations. The spirit of Ahab, he said, it's okay. The pronouncement from the prophet said that there were things that, that were coming his way that were going to be very devastating for the nation of Israel. But because of his repentance, they wouldn't come in his lifetime. They would only come in the lifetime of his children and his grandchildren. And Ahab said, that's okay. As long as it doesn't happen in my lifetime, I'm good with that. But that's not how we think. We have a responsibility to pass this great truth in the world that we live in to our children and to our grandchildren and to our great-grandchildren. This race that we are in is a relay race specifically. God's not just concerned about how you run or how I run. He cares as much about the runners after us who will take our baton and run the next lap, the runners of the next generation. I heard a story once about a priceless family heirloom. It was a vase 
that was passed down from one generation to the next. How many has any heirlooms in your house? Something that doesn't have a lot of value. It's intrinsic in its value. It's just sentimental in its value. You, you don't want to lose it. You don't want to see it broken because it belonged perhaps to your mother, to your grandmother, maybe to your great-grandmother, maybe even further back. It has some value because they owned it. Not that it's expensive, but they owned it. And so you want to keep it in your family. And this one, one day, the parents of the family who had possession of this vase left the teenagers at home while they went out shopping for the day. And when they returned home, their children met the parents at the door with sad faces, reporting, Dad, Mom, you know that priceless heirloom our family passes down from one generation to the next? Well, our generation just dropped it into a thousand pieces. I don't want the generation that follows me to just drop this beautiful, valuable truth that I hold dear. Because I'm not just living for myself, I'm living for the next generation and for the generation to follow and for the generation to follow that should the Lord tarry and should he tarry about coming. I'm living not just for myself, but I'm living for others. Each generation has memories and has stories and has values it wants to pass along to the next generation. This especially includes spiritual values. I don't want my faith to be dropped after my children leave home. I want them to continue on living for God as I have lived for God. Amen? I want to segue here just for a moment to Proverbs chapter 22 and verse 6. The scripture says, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Now, I can understand for obvious reasons, many parents uh, regard this verse as a pronouncement of condemnation. They reason that the proof is in the pudding. They tell themselves that if only they had done a better job of training up their child, he or she would have never departed from the path. Now, I realize that those feelings may be justified in some situations. But I'd like to also suggest that that is not universally the case. We're convinced that it isn't fair to draw such a conclusion on the basis of Proverbs 22 and 6 alone. Because if you study the scripture carefully, this is a proverb. This verse was never meant to be understood as an absolute promise. You see, Proverbs, they create a statement of probability. If you do this, this is most likely to happen. You read the, through the book of Proverbs, it tells you if you're like this, if you act this way, if you say these things, this most likely will happen. It's not necessarily a promise. It just includes the probability. If you act as a thief, most likely you're going to die as a thief. Amen? If you're honest, most likely you will die and people will look at you as you lie in the casket and say there lies an honest man or an honest woman. It's how you live, the probability. It's going to be spoken of you. It not necessarily means that that's what you are in the end because we serve a God that can change your life. A God that can change the circumstances of your life. You see, this is the beauty of living for God. The Bible says old things have passed away and behold, all things become new. That's the power and the blessing of the Holy Ghost. You might have been a drug addict, but you're no longer a drug addict. You might have been a whoremonger, but you're no longer a whoremonger. You might have been an alcoholic, but you're no longer an alcoholic. Because those things have passed away and you have become new in Jesus Christ. We serve a God that changes things. We serve a God that can change your life. 
Someone said, well, my grandfather was an alcoholic, my daddy was an alcoholic, and I guess I have to be an alcoholic. Well, you can accept that if you want, but when you walk through the doors of an apostolic church and you bow your knee at an apostolic altar and repent of your sins, you get baptized in Jesus' name and receive the infilling of the Holy Ghost, your life will change, and I promise you that. You don't have to remain the same. I just want to stop here for a moment and camp right here at this, at this little juncture. You don't have to remain the same as you have been. Someone said, well, an old dog don't learn new tricks. I, I beg to differ. Uh, that's, a, that's a proverb. Uh, there's some probability in that. Uh, but when you meet the presence of God, uh, the one who created the light uh, that we enjoy, the earth that we inhabit, uh, he said, let there be light. Uh, he created everything. He can make a change in your life. I think we believe the pronouncements of the world too much. Well, this is how I, I am and this is how it's always going to be. Not necessarily so. If you accept that, that's how it's going to be. Amen. Now, I, I'm not here to pick a bone with uh, Alcoholics Anonymous. I believe that they do a lot of good. So I, I want to preface what I say by saying I, I think it's good if, you're, if those that are involved in that participate in that program. I do have a difference with them though. When you come to God and your heart and life is changed, you do not remain the same. They have a pronouncement when they go, you know, I'm alcoholic. I've always been an alcoholic, but I'm, I'm glad that I'm, I'm free from alcohol for X amount of days or months or years. And, and I'm happy for that. I, I'm not here to slam Alcoholics Anonymous. But I am here to promote the power of the Holy Ghost. When God delivers you, He delivers you. And you're no longer the same. It's exactly the same as when God touched uh, Jacob. He said, your name is no longer Jacob, uh, but your name is Israel. You are a prince with God. You change. There's a complete DNA change that takes place in your life. Yes, there is. You become a child of the king. You receive a blood transfusion. The blood of Jesus Christ now flows through your veins. Amen. We buried the old man when we went down in the watery grave of baptism. That's why baptism is so important. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. You have to be baptized in Jesus' name. You have to bury that old man. Amen. I just want to come against that spirit that says, well, this is what I am. This is how it's always got to be. No, we, I strongly, vehemently disagree with that. Amen. Amen. That's right, Brother Sean. Amen. You're an old but new man. <laughs> The old things have passed away, and all things new have arrived. Amen? We have a lot of things in the church sometimes we accept from the world. I just, I come against that. The world tries to press us in its particular mold. And we many times will refer to that as doctrine. But there is a, a, there is a spirit in the world that tries to, re, to press us in. To tries to get us to acclimate, to tries to, to uh, cause us to be tolerant. And I'm tolerant to a, a certain point. I, I don't like to pick a bone with anyone. I, I want to be peaceful. The Bible says, blessed are the peacemakers. I, I want to be peaceful. I, my family's not a, a family where we're troublemakers, where there's discontent all the time. I'm not saying that we never have never had words with one another, but we work it out. Peace is what we usually work for. 
There are some myths in passing the faith from one generation to the next. The first myth is that it happens by osmosis. Meaning, our children will catch the spiritual values by simply being around the parents. And by simply going to church. And by simply being a part of youth, the youth group. I'm here to tell you that you can't catch this by osmosis. You have to be taught. Amen? This is something that we're taught. The scripture tells us in the book of Deuteronomy, when you're sitting in your house, teach your children. When you're walking by the way, teach your children. When you're going someplace else, teach your children. When you're getting ready to lie down, teach your children. This has to be constantly taught every day. Consistency. If we are not intentional about teaching the why behind the value, our children won't understand why faith even matters. I've known of a lot of children. You know, I grew up in, this, in church. I grew up attending church and, and, and been to a lot of churches. My parents were missionaries, so we attended churches all over the country and been a part of youth groups and been overseas at churches and but sad to say, I know missionaries' children that are not serving God. Sad to say, I know, I have a lot of contemporaries, meaning a lot of preachers' children that are not serving God. That's because they didn't catch it by osmosis. Somehow, they didn't grasp what was going on. Maybe they weren't taught. I'm not here to reflect in any way, shape, or form against the parents. I'm just saying something happened in the passing of the baton. Somebody slipped up. Somebody was disqualified. Somebody was pushed out of the game because God is an exact God and it has to be the right way. He's not sloppy. He, he doesn't just say, well, that'll work if it's a quarter inch off or if it's out of level or if it's not plumb. God believes in things being square and framed up properly. Let's be honest, parents. Our children don't always see our best side sometimes. They live with us. <laughs> Abraham Lincoln said you can fool some of the people some of the time, but you can't fool all the people all the time, and the ones you can't really fool are your children. You can fool everybody else, but those people that live with you, they know who you are. And sometimes they can catch the wrong values displayed in our moments of weakness. So you have to be intentional. Myth number two it's the job of the professionals. That's what the church is for, some people say. That's what the pastor, what the preacher is for. It's there to follow the pastor, the preacher. I'm here to give you a general word, and you're to take that general word and make it specific to your own life. Some people take themselves out of the game. Some parents do, feeling as if their lack of knowledge or their prior mistakes or their prior mistakes disqualify them from being the primary spiritual influence in their child's life. That goes back to what I said just a moment ago about old things that passed away. Amen. Amen. That, that, that person, that individual that you used to know is no longer there. I'm honest now. Amen. Amen. When you come to God... Uh, Paul, in his writing, expected there to be a drastic change in your life. Amen. We don't gradually leave the world and get into the church. You leave the world and come into the church. Now, I'm, if you want to talk about sanctification, there are processes there. But when you leave the world, you leave the world. You don't just gradually stop drinking <laughs> alcohol. You don't say, well, I, I used to drink a half a pint uh, uh, every day. I'm going to drink only a quarter of a pint. No, when you leave the world, you leave the world. Amen? 
I used to cuss every other word when I was in the world and I'm only going to say a cuss word when I hit my thumb with the hammer. No, when you leave the world, you leave the world. Well, I, I got a little kickback on that, Brother John. Some of you must be hitting your thumb with the hammer and saying words that you shouldn't be saying. Amen. Oh, me. Yeah. <laughs> if you know the gospel, if you've heard the gospel preach and you take notes, you know enough to start teaching your children. You know enough to influence your children to believe the truth. You don't have to be a theologian. Number three, sometimes when children become teenagers and they get a mind of their own, you get weary. How many has ever been weary as a parent? <sighs> yeah, you did. And I did it to the, the elderly man over there on the end, too. <laughs> when you're about 15 and you know everything, <laughs> and then some. <laughs> Sometimes you just want to say, okay, if that's what you want to do, go ahead and do it. But you have to determine in your mind the right way is the right way. And this is how we live around here. Now, if you're still living in my house and you're 18, if you don't like the rules in my house, well, you can go ahead and leave. Pack your clothes in a suitcase and get out of my house. Did I say that? Yes, I did say that. Now, I will say you're welcome to stay in my house, but I do have some rules. And my rules... This is my house. I pay the mortgage. I pay the electric bill. I pay the veteran bill. I, I put food on the table and in the refrigerator. So if you want to live in my house, you have to abide by my rules. And I don't care if you're 25. If I say you have to be home by 10, you have to be home by 10. He said, man, you're a hard guy. No, this is just my rules. I don't go to my neighbor's house, knock on the door and say, hey, these are my rules. You've got to abide by my rules. If he wants to let his children run around until 5 o'clock in the morning, that's his business. Just don't be squealing the tires in my parking lot. <laughs> Amen. There are house rules. And so I decided it's worth the effort. This is what happens here. Now, you get to a certain point where you're a certain age, and I, I really can't enforce those rules on you. Then you'll have to go to a place where you can live with those whatever rules you decide or no rules or whatever. Amen? It is worth the effort. So the myth that says it's not worth the effort, you've got to keep the effort up when you're in the 15 years of age and, and when you're in the 16 years of age and when you're in the 17 years of age and yes, and when you're in the 18 years of age and hopefully when they, hopefully, hopefully, I say hopefully, <laughs> when, when we get to about 18 years of age, some sense has finally crept in. Well, you know, the, the neuroscientists say that your brain hasn't completely formed until you're about 22. Is that correct? Any of you medical, in the medical field here, your brain is not completely developed until you're about 22 years of age. All you nurses, raise your hand. Is that correct? 25? I mean, I was a little too young. Oh, Lord. <laughs> Some of us want to start all over. Can I go back to 25? <laughs> there was one young man in the scripture that understood who God is. and He finally was able to grasp what God had for him. and His name was Joshua. This was Moses' young assistant. 
Joshua learned to stand on his convictions of God's provisions as a spy. Now, just think for a moment. There were two men. The Bible says that there were 12 spies that were sent out. Ten came back. Their friends, all the friends of Joshua and Caleb came back and said, it's a bad place. You don't want to go there. But there were two individuals that went against what everyone else was saying. The majority was against them. You know, you have to develop convictions sometime. Or you're just going to be whipped about by every wind of doctrine. Everything that flows your way. But Joshua and Caleb, and specifically Joshua here today... We're speaking about he stood on his convictions and later declared his obedience in leading the people of Israel to take possession of the promised land. In Joshua chapter 24 and verse 15, he made a declaration and, and you are well aware of this declaration. He said, as for me and my house, he said, now you, if you want to go back to the gods that your fathers served on the other side of the river, speaking specifically of the gods of wood and stone and precious metals that Abraham had come out of. He said, if you want to go back to that, you're welcome to go back to that. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I think that Joshua had some house rules. You want to live in my house? This is what we do. We serve God here. He said, we will serve the Lord. And the impact of his leadership was that the people of Israel continued to live faithful to God even after his death. So Joshua 24, verse 31, Israel served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua. And the elders who outlived him and who had experienced everything the Lord had done for Israel. However, the passing on of faith broke down after the third generation. I want to know this. We're expecting, he's a little young yet, but we're expecting Someday in the not too distant future that little Stanley is going to get baptized in Jesus' name. And we're expecting that little Stanley is going to receive the baptism of the Holy Ghost. And wasn't I told just a few minutes ago that if when he receives the Holy Ghost, that'll be generation number seven in the family? Seven generations. Hallelujah. That's passing it from one generation to the next. There's something sticky about this faith. It sticks to you. You really get a hold of this, it's going to stick to you. Through thick and thin, you get a hold of something. You're not going to be offended at someone who says something to you or does something to you. Great peace have they that love thy law and nothing shall offend them. In other words, there will be an offense that comes, but it won't take you out of church. It'll keep you serving God. It'll keep you walking in faith as we walk toward Jesus Christ. Scripture said here in Joshua 24, verse 31, that the elders who outlived him, but something happened in that third generation. Somewhere along the line, parents failed to instruct their children. And the larger spiritual community, the church, failed to honor God. In Judges chapter 2, verse 10, after that whole generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. We, we still believe in the gifts of the Spirit in this church. We still sing some old songs in this church. 
We believe in tongues and interpretation in this church. We believe in divine healing in this church. We believe in prophecy in this church. Amen. We believe in the word of knowledge in this church. Amen. We believe in the word of wisdom in this church. We believe in the working of miracles in this church. We believe in the gifts of the spirit. We believe in the power of the Holy Ghost to still affect and change people's lives in this church. I have no criticism for anyone. Any, any church that you see built, someone thought good. I don't mean that they're always right. I'm just saying someone thought good. But there are some old truths that we have to pass down. This is not just my grandmother's religion. This is not just my parents' religion. This is not just my religion. Sir, sure, I can say this is, it has become mine, just as the Apostle Paul said, my gospel. This is my gospel. Baptism in Jesus' name is not yours. It's mine. I know it comes from the word of God, but it is mine. It's part of me. The infilling of the Holy Ghost by the evidence of speaking with other tongues is not just in the Bible. It's not just a doctrine that I teach you, but it's mine. Why? Because I am apostolic. And we have to pass this apostolic truth to our children. See that we become more and more like the world. Uh, uh, the less and less we pray and we get close to the scripture, we, we become more and more like the world and it becomes a community. It becomes a place just of gathering. It becomes a place where we uh, hear nice little uh, platitudes and we hear homilies and little sermonettes. Uh, I want the real preaching of the word of God. Uh, this is not a political rally. This is the preaching of the word of God. Now, there are places and times for all those things. Uh, there, are, there is speaking at political rallies, and, and I'm glad for that. I'm glad for the ability uh, that we have and the freedom, the constitutional freedom that we have uh, of freedom of speech. Uh, and uh, we have all kinds of different rallies that you can attend and different meetings and different seminars. Uh, but this is preaching. Uh, this is different from, the word, from what you might hear out in the world. Uh, this is the preaching of the Word of God. And the, as the world preachers are so goes the world if the world around us is in moral laxitude it's because there isn't preaching amen if you don't preach be honest people won't be honest I heard one man one time say well it's wrong to steal uh, from uh, a little corner grocery store. But, you know, it's okay if you can take something from Walmart because they're a big corporation. And I said, well, that line of reasoning is, will take you to the brink of destruction. I said, because if it's wrong, it's wrong. It's wrong to steal from your neighbor or if it's wrong to steal from the grocery corner grocery store. And it's just as wrong to steal from a corporation. Stealing is stealing. If you start taking attack and, and varying your reason and you start having situational ethics. Well, I won't steal from you because you're my neighbor, you know, and we're close to each other. I, I won't steal from the, the little small businessman because they really uh, they really need it but you know this guy that uh, this big corporation he can absorb it uh, he can handle it uh, I want you to know that that's the wrong line of thinking uh, and that is a lie from the pit amen I don't know why I'm dwelling on stealing somebody must be stealing that you need to repent I don't have my in my notes that way But I've heard reasoning like that. Amen. Israel served the Lord through the lifetime of Joshua and the elders who outlived him. You cannot assume that a past faithfulness will continue or that future generations will be aware of a historical legacy. I can take you to church after church after church after church after church where there was truth preached once there, but it's no longer preached 
Amen? Each generation must be taught who God is and what he has done. Through a lifestyle and a lifetime of studying Timothy, we would discover that God has given us a model of how to pass on our faith to our children. Timothy was a young man when Paul revisited Lystra on his second missionary trip. Approximately five years earlier, he had been through there. And maybe it was because of Timothy's family became Christians during that first visit. During those five years, Timothy matured in his faith under the spiritual guidance of his mother and his grandmother. In Paul's last letter to Timothy, Paul notes the family spiritual environment in his last epistle, writing, this is the last epistle that he wrote, I have been reminded of your sincere faith. Notice how he says that, that sincere faith. It's not just a passing fad. It's not just something that you're doing because it seems like the cool thing to do at the moment. He said, I I know your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother, Lois, and your mother, Eunice. Children mimic their parents' religious experience. If you stay home from church, that's exactly what your kids will do. If you gossip, your kids will do worse. There is an old-fashioned saying that says, If you get a cold, your kids get pneumonia. Meaning, you might have a reservation about going and only go so far, but your children don't know that reservation. They haven't experienced life, and so they'll think that it's okay, and they'll go even further. They'll pray. Children will pray as you have prayed in their presence. They'll raise their hands in worship when they see you raise your hands in worship. You see, because there came a point in time, young people, that Timothy no longer could say, well, it's my mom and my grandmother's religion. There has to be something that takes hold in your life. You you know, you, you can't forever determine your salvation on somebody else. If you're saying, if someone asks you a question and you respond by saying, well, this is what my church preaches or or believes, or this is what my preacher says, well, you really haven't got it yet. It has to, there, there has to come a point in time where this becomes you. You, and you, you, if your parents were bad or did things that they shouldn't have done, you have to reach a point in time where you say, well, that they did some wrong things. I love them, but I'm not going to stay there either. I have to pull myself up by my own proverbial bootstraps. In other words, it's time to stop whining around of what happened to you and go forward from the point that you find yourself. Remember, we said old things have passed away and behold, all things have become new. Timothy was no longer acting out part of a good child. After those, in those five years, he had taken ownership of his faith. You know, you have to take ownership of this. As Paul had seen the evidence of his faith in Timothy's actions. Passing on our faith begins in the family home as a spiritual practice. What parents can do, number one, you can pray. Number one. Timothy was on Paul's prayer list. Paul made it a regular practice to pray with a list and to at least mention in prayer those who were precious to him. Pray for more than just blessings and protection. Pray for them to grow in wisdom. Pray applying difficult life experiences to life choices. Pray that 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 they would experience the fullness of Jesus Christ. Pray for their friendship to be healthy and a positive influence. Pray for their future spouse and their potential grandchildren. Well, I don't know if you knew it, know it, Sister Whitney. I prayed for you a long time before I ever met you. And my granddaughter, I prayed for her a long time. And Wesley coming now a long time before Amen. they got here. 
Amen. I pray for myself as a parent to have wisdom what to say and when to say and say something good. Amen. Look for a teachable moment. Look for moments to teach. And create teachable moments. Take the initiative to talk about God at family devotions, using time to read the scripture and debrief the various Bible studies. Look through the Bible and, and you see some character, some individual, and, and discuss that and why they did and the actions and, and the result of their actions. Acts chapter 16 verse 1 gives us more context to the beginning of Timothy's spiritual journey. Timothy's mother and grandmother were believers. In verse 2, the larger spiritual community had been around Timothy. So it wasn't just his grandmother and his mother, but the larger spiritual community. You know, the body is not, they're very intelligent, the body is. They identify if someone's got a calling. It doesn't necessarily have to be the pastor. The body identifies. And here the scripture says in verse 2 that the brothers of Lystra and Iconium spoke well of Timothy. They recognized something within him. There was a calling. There was a, an anointing. Timothy didn't have to say, well, I'm called. I, I, I. It was the body recognized. That's why we have, uh, you know, someone said to me, well, I can sleep, I can live, live for God and I, I, I can serve God outside of the church. Well, you need the body because the body will recognize and, and quarantine and help you and, and guide you. If, if I, all we were is just single cells living outside of the general body, the, the body itself couldn't help that single cell. This larger spiritual community found him teachable. Everybody say teachable and faithful. There's two ingredients that you need to serve and live for God. Number one is to be teachable. If you're not teachable, if you buck it every time someone tries to give you some correction, well, it'll be a long time coming for God ever uses you, if ever. And you have to be faithful. The community, the brothers at Lystra and Iconium, they saw great benefit in Timothy joining Paul's team and recommending Timothy to Paul. The larger community of faith is needed. The body here is needed. It's just we dedicated little Stanley to the Lord, but it's not just his parents. We need the church as a whole. A youth group is not enough. Amen. You can't just drive up to the church and say, okay, kids, get out and everything's going to be okay. You got to teach. The youth group has to work and the general body has to work. Amen. What can the community of faith can do as a church? Seek out a teenager. Seek out a young person. You know, a lot of times young people don't introduce themselves to someone who's older. You might have to go across the aisle. Break that cultural and age divide. Call them by name. Say something encouraging to them. If you do this at least three times, you're going to develop a relationship with that teenager where you can start, start to ask them questions and help minister to them. Amen? Provide a consistent message of love and truth. Amen. Monitor a teen through youth ministry programs. You know, it would be okay if you volunteered to help the youth. You say, well, I'm a long way from being a youth. Well, the youth could use a lot of volunteers. Maybe you being there, the Lord might uh, see you and speak a word to you to help some young person. You know, there is a man in the Bible, his name is Barnabas. In the book of Acts. Barnabas. The scripture, out of all the other disciples that were there that were probably... Uh, greatly used of God and had many gifts. It isolates one individual specifically and calls him Barnabas. 
His name Barnabas means son of encouragement. You know, some people just need an encouraging word. You don't have to be a, a, a theologian. You don't have to have a word from God necessarily. It just means a, an encouraging word. And the scripture in the book of Acts decided, uh, Luke, when he was writing, that this is a most important attribute to have. To be an encourager. You can do it. You can do it. Somebody say, you can do it. You can live for God. You can serve God. Amen. You can overcome. Hallelujah. Provide a consistent message of love and truth. They need to see our faith in action. I always told my children when at the end of the service, always go forward. Come down to the altar and pray. I never went to the altar and prayed by myself, leaving my children in the pew I said, hey, you got to come with me. First of all, I'm going to watch and make sure you mind your P's and Q's. <laughs> and you're not flipping rubber bands at people. And, and, uh... <laughs> but the secondly, and most importantly, I want you up front because this is where the action is. This is the, where the Spirit of God is. Amen. And while you're there, I'm praying for somebody else. I might lay hands and pray for you. Amen. Always bring your children to the altar. Never bypass the altar when you're going home. You come to church. You come to church for one reason is to get close to God, right? So how many times have you come to church and you've bypassed the altar? You've looked at your watch or you, and you said, well, how long is he going to preach for? Or, and, you, and you slipped out the back and you didn't get a hold of God at the altar. The central piece of furniture when you went into the temple, the tabernacle, was the altar. You have to go by the altar. I know you say, well, I don't really have to. I can sing songs and I can go through all the preliminaries of the service. And that's what they are, the preliminaries. But the altar is the most important part because that's where God gets a hold of you. Don't go home without stopping by the altar. Amen. Go home by way of the altar. Parents, take your children to the altar. It's not necessarily, these are steps, and I know this is a place where we keep the pulpit, and there, are, there isn't really a specific altar as such here, if you want to use that term for piece of furniture. It is a place in mind where we come to pray and meet with God. In other words, if I can break it down to you, and for you, don't go home without meeting God. Don't go home without talking to him and humbling yourself and saying, God, I need you more today than I've ever needed you. Don't go home without stopping by the altar. If you would stand to your feet with me this morning. Sticky faith. Passing that faith from one generation to the next is not just something that we do by chance. I can imagine Paul reflecting back on the day that he first selected Timothy. Paul wanted to take him along on the journey, but he had chosen others and been disappointed. The sting of Demas' betrayal. Demas was intelligent. Demas was, had an ability. Demas had gifts. Demas was a preacher. He was an orator. He had ability like nobody else. Demas was the one that Paul dreamed about. This is the man that I'm going to send. And he's going to take over for me. But the Bible says that Demas forsook Paul having loved this present world he got a little gleam in his eyes and a little pride lifted him up you know it's okay for people to say you did a great job people saying you did a great job is like cologne or perfume it's okay to smell it it's not okay to drink it if someone says you did okay you did a great job say thank you and that's all you need to say. Don't let it get into your head. 
But Demas allowed this to get into his head. And Paul wondered, would Timothy be the same? Would he have the same effect with, with this popularity and this prestige of traveling with me and people knowing his name while he didn't know their names? Paul writes to Timothy at the, about the end of his journey and he said, in the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to reliable people. Paul wrote two letters, two very important letters to a young man named Timothy. He was investing himself in them. But he said, it's not just for you, Timothy. He said, I want you to choose reliable individuals who will also be qualified to teach others. So not just you, Timothy, and not just that third generation, but a fourth generation and those beyond. Timothy's faith that began at home blossomed into a larger community of faith and reached a maturity where he could minister to others and those ministered to others and they ministered to others until we are here today and I'm referring to a man that lived thousands of years ago his name is Timothy his name was Paul transmitting that truth Amen. this wonderful truth that we love giving it to someone else would you raise your hands to the Lord right now we thank you Jesus we worship you we thank you for your word right now. Hallelujah. I'm going to give an altar call and invite you to come today as we refer to the altar, this place that we often come to. Would you come and pray? Would you seek the Lord? There are various uh, stages of faith. Maybe you're very familiar and you're coming now because this is something that you're well acquainted with and you come all the time. But maybe you've never come forward. I invite you to come forward. If you stand here, we won't embarrass you. Just come forward to the altar.